Hello and welcome back to the Australian Histories Podcast. In this series we're taking a look at Governor Bly and the so-called Rum Rebellion. In the previous episodes we considered the fledgling society in New South Wales and the corruption that had evolved, particularly associated with the New South Wales core officers and those working with them. Bly had been sent to replace Governor King with the very specific brief of making reforms that would reduce their influence and control. He began by consulting with the settlers and small farmers in particular, before introducing a number of changes and regulations, which did indeed impact on the corruption endemic in the colony's economy. But as these changes were introduced, there was rising pushback from those who would be adversely affected. John MacArthur, in particular, was bent on conflict with the Governor, and he had the support of the New South Wales Corps officers and what Evatt called the Trading Faction in Sydney. We spoke about the Australian High Court judge, later the Australian Attorney-General, Herbert Doc Evatt, writing years later in 1931 that the path to the Rum Rebellion can be read by looking at five important court cases that occurred during Bly's short governorship, almost all with MacArthur as antagonist. So in this episode, we'll be looking at those cases and the building tension they reflected. They were, one, the case of the promissory note, two, the case of Wentworth, three, the case of the stills, four, the case of the Parramatta, and five, the case of sedition. If you haven't listened to episode 52 and 53 yet, it might be worth going back and doing so first to get a refresher on what led up to the actions we're talking about today. Just quickly, I'd like to thank Tracy F, Joel H, Brian R, Sarah Z, Fraud J, and Tom H for making contributions to the upkeep of this independent podcast recently via the one-off donation link on the Australian Histories Podcast webpage. Your support is much appreciated, as always, and it's a great pleasure to know that you're enjoying the work. Okay then, let's continue our look at Bly and the Rum Rebellion. For those in the colony who had been gaining great advantage from the existing arrangements, Bly's reforms began to bite. In the new year of 1807, some of the previously powerful men began digging their heels in, making life difficult for Bly and his administration. Already in October of 1806, just several weeks after his arrival, Bly had instituted more government control over the ports and over the boat building in the colony. On November 1st, barter in goods as payment for labour or settlement of debts was forbidden, instead to be transacted in sterling. In early January, promissory notes were also only to be paid in sterling, and the notes were to be controlled through the government offices, further controlling barter and pushing the economy into the use of British currency. February 14th saw regulations outlawing the importation of stills to help control the production of local spirits and to reduce the use of the much-needed grain to that purpose. From the 28th of the same month, all incoming goods shipped to the colony had to be unloaded only at the Port Jackson docks, again allowing for administrative oversight and control of inward goods through the government-appointed offices an early customs clearance of sorts. 
By late July, Bly began taking action on the invalid short-term leases within the domain in Sydney, which had been granted in error of earlier town planning arrangements. And this action in particular would aggravate a good number of the elite in Sydney and would further exacerbate conflict directly with MacArthur. Bly was charged by the British government with the development and control of the town planning around Sydney, much of which had already grown out of control without any heed to the early regulations that Governor Philip had mandated. Soon after his arrival, he took stock of all the government and public buildings and reported on their situation and state of repair, the historical records of Australia reprinting the long lists of comments he sent back to England. Much of the land set aside in the heart of Sydney was expected to be reserved for government, church and public use. The original orders from Philip's time stipulated that no private leases were supposed to be given in these areas. Unfortunately, Hunter and King had not enforced those town planning restrictions when they had control, and a number of short-term leases had been allocated to officers of the Corps and other prominent citizens. Some had unwisely already built on the short-term lease plots, and this became another point of resentment and material financial loss for those involved. But in July, Bly gave notice they would begin enforcing the original town planning arrangements and offered the leaseholders alternative plots around Sydney instead. They had until November 1st to negotiate for alternative land, but not everyone rushed to do so, and there was a lot of aggravation about the loss of the prime land around the domain, which they'd hoped to hold on to, of course. So there was a lot of reform going on, which was going to infuriate the powerful factions in New South Wales, and a number of the court cases we'll touch on relate in some way to the new regulations and changes that Bly introduced. Clearly, he was becoming a bigger and bigger target for those disaffected. So let's use the first of Evett's identified critical court cases to illustrate the growing frustration and aggravation. The case of the promissory note. One crucial interaction which soured the relationship between MacArthur and Bly occurred in July of 1807, arising from a dispute between MacArthur and Andrew Thompson over an outstanding debt. Thompson was an emancipated convict who had property on the Hawkesbury, so already he would have been amongst those with no love for MacArthur and the feeling would have been mutual. Thompson had become a chief constable under Governor Hunter and was a successful farmer and businessman and a valued member of the Hawkesbury community. He went on to oversee the management of Bly's farms there and had been the recipient of some rare land grants that Bly made. So it's not unreasonable that MacArthur considered him a favourite of Bly's. But whether calling in his debt had anything to do with hoping to provoke Bly is unknown. More likely, it was simply a matter of doing so to gain greatest advantage, owing to the economic conditions. Back before the floods and the crop losses of March 1806, MacArthur had purchased Thompson's debt from the original lender, consisting of a £300 loan with interest payable. We should note here that this was a great tactic of MacArthur's. Now being a wealthy man, he often made loans himself or purchased debts and not only for their financial value. He seemed to purchase and hold debts owed by persons that he might have dealings with, perhaps to ensure that he had something to influence or pressure them with. When MacArthur purchased Thompson's outstanding debt, the agreement noted the value approximated 99 bushels of wheat. 
a bushel at that time worth about seven shillings sixpence, and he might have expected to make a small profit on this purchase. But after the flood, the price of wheat rose to 28 shillings per bushel, increasing the worth of the wheat fourfold, so now he expected he could quadruple his profit too. I note here that some sources claim the wheat prices actually rose tenfold, but whatever multiplier was correct, it certainly would have looked like a huge windfall instead of the already agreed interest on the original debt, if it were to be paid in wheat. When MacArthur called in his promissory note, he expected to receive the number of bushels expressed in the note, but Thompson tendered only the value of the agreed debt owing in cash. MacArthur refused that cash amount, and he sued for the 99 bushels of wheat. However, the civil court upheld Thompson's offer, confirming the original note was, quote, an expression of value of the debt and not an actual quantity of wheat, unquote. MacArthur could take the cash, or he could take the wheat to the equivalent value of the original debt, plus the agreed interest. MacArthur, unhappy at not being able to cash in on the windfall due to the high price of wheat, appealed the verdict, which was then referred to Bly. Bly took advice from the only person in the colony with any legal training, a pardoned convict named George Crossley, who had worked 20 years as a lawyer in the English Court of Kings before his downfall. Considering the evidence presented at the earlier trial, Bly upheld the ruling. On this occasion, MacArthur was unsuccessful, and he was most unhappy about not being given a platform at an appeal to get on the soapbox and embellish his case. He would file that grievance away for a later date. And just to note and keep in mind, this man Crosley was, after nearly 20 years of settlement in New South Wales, still the only man Bly could turn to for legal advice. Not even the judge advocate Atkins had any legal training. Amazing. Why, oh why, would the British government leave the colony in such deficit for so long? It's almost like they were inviting trouble. MacArthur later complained about Bly's response to his appeal, suggesting that he took the advice and upheld the ruling without even hearing his appeal. He was outraged that Bly should take advice from convicts and blackguards, and that in supporting Thompson, Bly was treating his friends with favour. He took Bly's response and his failed appeal as a personal snub. MacArthur was already suspicious of Bly's personal motives towards him because he was such a friend of Banks, another who had slighted MacArthur, well, in his own mind anyway, and he was sure to tell everyone he could about Bly's corruption as he saw it. Doc Evatt, in reviewing the case, stated, quote, In the circumstances, as far as it was possible to reconstruct them, MacArthur was legally wrong and Bly was legally right, unquote. But either way, Bly had already proved to be problematic for MacArthur by introducing many regulations which put the brakes on some of his money-making ventures. Now, in failing to overturn an unfavourable legal outcome, Bly had become a clear enemy of the MacArthurs. The second case Evatt referred to was the case of Wentworth. So not MacArthur in this instance, but certainly someone somewhat aligned with MacArthur, and just as hostile to Bly's reforms, in that Wentworth had been using the resources of the government in a very cynical way, in a manner developed when the Corps were in charge, and Bly attempting to change that arrangement caused him great offence. 
I don't think I've mentioned Darcy Wentworth yet, but he's one of a number of characters in the Bly saga, particularly important here, in Everett's view, because he would later be called upon to help justify the removal of Bly. So I'll just briefly recount the proceedings, which arose not long after the case of the promissory note. Darcy Wentworth is described in the Australian Dictionary of Biography as, quote, a medical practitioner and public servant, unquote. and it's suggested he ran up some rather embarrassing debts in the old country before taking a New South Wales post as assistant surgeon, arriving in June of 1790. By July of 1807, though, Wentworth was in charge of the government hospital at Parramatta, where convicts were sent if too unwell to undertake their assigned work, obviously kept there at the government expense. If you recall, during the years the New South Wales Corps was in charge, the officers who needed labour would simply assign convicts to their own properties, but leave them funded at government cost, thus providing themselves with free labour. Later governors formalised the allocation of convict labour, with Bly further insisting that any officer must make a formal application through the administration for any convict labour allocation and that any that was supplied would be fed, housed and provisioned at the expense of that private applicant. Convict labour was no longer free or numerous for most settlers and farmers, a very unpopular change for those used to profiting from the old system. Wentworth was one who should now have been paying for any convict labour at his private farm, but he'd found an interesting workaround. It was on his authority that convicts were deemed well enough to return to the labour pool and be discharged from the hospital, but it appeared that, in his view, many, many convicts required a period, sometimes months, of convalescence on his own farm. <laughs> this move to his farm was not a formal discharge from the hospital, so their upkeep was still on the government purse but, not being formally discharged, they were not sent back to the official labour pool or to their previous workplace either. In fact, often, they only seemed well enough to be discharged when Wentworth no longer required the labour. Of course, when Bly became aware of this abuse, he had the matter investigated, and the constable undertaking the inquiry noted Wentworth had, at that time, seven patients working at his farm. Some had been there for many months. Bly, of course, sent Wentworth written instructions, insisting that any convict well enough to work at his farm must be sent back to their previous duties via the proper administrative channels. And so Wentworth would immediately lose a number of his convalescing convicts. Wentworth and his sympathetic cronies saw this as more interference into their long-standing arrangements and as simply high-handed behaviour from Bly, and they added this to their other gripes. Wentworth really spat the dummy, though. When Captain Abbott next sent two sick convicts to the hospital, Wentworth sent them straight back, advising Abbott he would not be admitting any more convicts as patients until Bly had clarified who was actually going to be responsible for their welfare, as he would not take responsibility if he was expected to send convalescing patients straight back to the administration and potential hard labour. Ah, well, it was all in the interests of the poor weak convicts then. Nothing self-serving going on here, Governor. But with the general rumblings of the corps men and their supporters, it was clear this action by Wentworth was yet another vexatious attempt to put the Governor back in his box. What Wentworth had done was disobey a lawful command from Abbott, his superior officer, 
and Abbott charged him with such before a court-martial. Now, Davis suggests that this was no power play between those two men. Indeed, Abbott and Wentworth were good friends prior to this incident and afterwards. So, we might presume this was all part of the trading faction's general approach to exasperating Bly. In providing the public court forum for the court-martial, many witnesses could be called, all of whom could give evidence and have the opportunity to voice their displeasure and discredit and undermine Bly. MacArthur used the court system and this tactic as a stage to vent his aggravation many times and now Wentworth was providing the stage. Davis sums it up like this. The New South Wales Corps commander, Johnston, and the judge advocate, Atkins, presided. It should have been a short, straightforward affair with the only evidence required whether Abbott gave a lawful order and whether Wentworth refused to obey it. Instead, many members of the Corps were allowed to give evidence, though totally irrelevant to the case, just taking the opportunity to air their grievances and criticise Bly, and neither Johnson nor Atkins put a stop to it. One officer spent most of his time complaining about the demolition of a building he had erected on the short-leased domain land. A dig at Bly for sure, but not much to do with Wentworth disobeying Abbott's orders. Wentworth in particular made great argument about the governor's quote, unreasonable interference in hospital matters, unquote, and the impact on the health of the patients and his obligation to allow them to work carefully and therapeutically on his farm, blah, 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 blah. But even that was an entirely different matter to the court-martial, and Wentworth should have taken that up with Bly in some other forum if he wished to advocate on behalf of his patients. Davis suggests Abbott, in calling the court-martial, was all about providing an opportunity for attacking Bly's rule rather than simply about whether Wentworth did or did not obey Abbott's order. Now here again, all may have been different had properly trained legal authorities been available. Irrelevant evidence would have been silenced, and this tactic would not have been as valuable. Of course, there could be no other outcome except to find Wentworth guilty of disobeying Abbott, and so he was punished with a public reprimand. <laughs> Probably not as fierce punishment as the shellacking that Bly had got from the negative complaints aired in court. Indeed, it was the lightest sentence a soldier could get for disobedience. But for his abuse of the system, Bly would suspend Wentworth from his position at the Parramatta Hospital, until the King's pleasure was known about the improper use of convict labour for personal profit, and this seemed to many an additional punishment of their friend Wentworth. However, it does seem like clear abuse. If convicts were fit to work on Wentworth's farm, they were fit to work on any farm, as directed by the convict labour administrators. Obviously, Bly would have sent reports of the matter straight back to England, as of course would the corps officers, and he stated, quote, Instead of the hospital being an asylum for sick men, as soon as they recovered to be returned to government labour, or to the poor settler from whom they came, it has been the practice to allow them to remain victualled as hospital patients requiring care, applying their use to private advantage, unquote. And the Home Office would not have been pleased with the costs involved in that scam, I'm sure. As a touchpoint for the developing aggravation, Evett reminds us how deliberate these confrontations were amongst the corps and the trading faction elite. On the evening Abbott sent the convicts to Wentworth, he was with MacArthur, and Evett surmises he remained chief advisor in many of the developments that arose. 
They seemed to have more trouble bullying Bly into yielding to their wishes, so they would work assiduously to discredit him and lay traps they could embellish and report back to sympathetic ears in London, hoping to undermine Bly's standing. Evert, in reflecting on this case, stated, quote, The case of Darcy Wentworth, when closely analysed, affords strong evidence of Bly's determination to assist the poorer settler and to prevent the abuse of their privileged position by the officers of the New South Wales Corps. It would have been much easier for Bly to have winked his eye at the misuse of convict labour by Wentworth and the other officers, including the medical staff. He was not prepared to do so. Unquote. And so we see, if we did not before, how he came to be so despised by those powerful men. Anti-corruption crusaders are always vilified by those benefiting from the corruption, else all is lost for them. The third spark to the rebellion fuse was the case of the stills, another incident which followed on from an earlier change of regulation, this time related to Bly's prohibition on the importation of stills. In March of 1807, a ship had arrived from London carrying amongst its goods two stills, destined for MacArthur and Abbott. The importation of stills had been outlawed in mid-February, so when it was unloaded to the Port Jackson dock in March, they were to be immediately impounded. MacArthur claimed the stills were sent to him by the agent entirely on spec and had not been specifically ordered by him, but either way, by the time they arrived in the colony, they were by then an illegal import. Bly of course ordered the stills to be impounded and to be held in government stores and afterwards sent back to England. Harris, the officer in charge with impounding them at the time, apparently took the top half of the stills into government custody, but, without any authority, he allowed MacArthur to take the large copper bodies to his own stores to facilitate the unloading of the other goods which were sent packaged inside, and there they stayed with MacArthur. In October, a ship was readying to return to England, and Bly ordered that both the confiscated stills be sent back on that ship. MacArthur was expected to retrieve the copper vessels from his store so they could be reunited with the top sections and loaded on the outgoing ship. But by October, with MacArthur and Bly at almost constant loggerheads, he refused to surrender them suggesting the governor could return the remainder of the stills, but he wished to retain the copper vessels for other domestic use. Bly wouldn't have it. The entire units would be exported. A naval officer, Robert Campbell, by now in charge of the imports and exports, was ordered to retrieve the coppers from MacArthur's possession, and so he sent his nephew, also Robert Campbell, to retrieve the equipment from MacArthur. Resistant to complying, this gave MacArthur the opportunity for a bit of pseudo-legal posturing, insisting that young Campbell had brought the wrong documents, had no authority to take the goods, and basically just refused to cooperate with Campbell's request. MacArthur was always keen to use the law to the full extent when he could bend it to his own purposes, but he didn't seem to care to abide by it if he deemed it against his own interests. Eventually, after three visits and argument back and forth, young Campbell was finally led to the store by MacArthur and told he could take the equipment himself, quote, at his own risk if he chose, unquote. But the young man failed to be dissuaded by the implied threat and he did finally have the vessels physically removed. The ever self-confident MacArthur immediately had young Campbell charged with, quote, illegal seizure of property, unquote. 
that he could do so expecting to have a leg to stand on is astounding. Evert says in the first instance of law, the stills in their entirety were an illegal import. MacArthur had no authority to remove them from the government store originally, as they were only permitted to land and be impounded until a ship could return them to England, and that Robert Campbell Sr. did have the authority to authorise Campbell Jr. to retrieve the illegal items on his behalf. He further stated that MacArthur's speech at the resulting court case was, quote, illogical, inflammatory, and from the point of view of strict law, rhetorical nonsense, unquote. In court, MacArthur complained that an Englishman cannot have his property removed by order of the government, that to do so would be illegal removal. That's clearly wrong. Societies continually create laws outlawing the possession of various items, and the authorities can legally impound the resulting illegal possessions. Just ask anyone who's had their cocaine haul seized by officers of the law. The stills had been illegally imported, and there was no doubt the governor as the chief executive officer enforcing the general orders of the colony, had the legal power to order their re-export. The fact that the copper vessels might be put to some other use on his farm might be true, but was completely irrelevant. But once again, the lack of properly trained legal practitioners was to cause trouble. The ridiculous case against poor young Campbell was brought before three officials, though we might have trouble describing them as impartial jurists. The first was Major George Johnson, commander of the New South Wales Corps and long-time friend and ally of MacArthur. The second official was Judge Advocate Richard Atkins. The very Judge Bly, and the previous governors too, it should be noted, had complained of as being a complete incompetent, and who was described in his Australian Dictionary of Biography entry as, quote, addicted to liquor, immorality and insolvency, and leading a thoroughly dissolute life, unquote and I'll explain a little more about Atkins shortly. The third man was the civil officer, John Palmer. The case against Campbell, having illegally seized MacArthur's property, proceeded, with MacArthur making his flawed case. Despite a clear chain of authority from the governor, through Campbell Sr. and then verbally to Campbell Jr., the majority ruled for MacArthur, stating that young Campbell had no official status in law and was not the officer authorised to seize the goods on behalf of the government. So, despite the legal scholar, Evert, describing the outcome as a miscarriage of justice, on this occasion it was a win for MacArthur, an embarrassing defeat for Bly, and potentially a personal legal disaster for the young Campbell. By now, with MacArthur emboldened, and a great many of his cronies also riled with the actions of this governor, Bly was starting to feel the pressure. The same month, in his letters to the Home Office, Bly had again flagged concerns about the reliability of the Corps, one stating, and I abridge here, quote, The officers of the New South Wales Corps, sojourning here for the long period of 20 years, have arrogated to themselves the most unlimited authority, having rendered themselves paramount to the civil power, unquote. And though Bly had done a great deal to try and rein in their dominance, they were ever the menace, and he recorded that many had very evil tendencies that may lead to serious consequences, In October, he had sent a report expressing his concern about the military to Secretary of State Wyndham, saying, There is no remedy but by the change of military duty, a circumstance which can only prevent a fixed corps becoming a dangerous militia, 
but his suggestion that they be replaced by, quote, proper soldiers, not men like those in the Corps, unquote, to move the men of the Corps on to other postings was ignored, and the dangerous militia that he envisaged actually surfaced the following year. After unanswered complaints from the previous governors, Bly also condemned the incompetence of the judge advocate Atkins. Most recently, his incompetence was particularly evidenced by the MacArthur-Campbell illegal stills case, and in the coming months, his lack of care and understanding of the laws and regulations, which directly triggered the final agitation that kicked off the rebellion. In December, a fourth infuriating legal stoush with MacArthur arose the case of the Parramatta, and it would be this that would lead directly on to the case of sedition. MacArthur co-owned a ship called the Parramatta, which had, on a voyage earlier in the year, been responsible for carrying a stowaway convict escapee to Tahiti. Being a penal colony, all ship arrivals and departures were controlled, the crew not able to disembark without formal permissions, and the ship owners bound to keep stowaways off their boats. Each ship had to pay an £800 bond to government to encourage their care and compliance in ensuring no stowaways boarded. Should a convict manage to escape on an outgoing ship, the owners were liable to forfeit the bond for their lack of care in facilitating such an escape. After an investigation by the governor, Campbell and Atkins, relating to this Tahiti escapee, the Parramatta's owners were found negligent in their duty, and the bond was to be forfeited to the government. In typical fashion, MacArthur appealed the decision, but once again Bly upheld the original ruling and MacArthur was ordered to pay the bond amount over to the government. MacArthur declared he simply would not pay the bond amount, and so Bly's naval officer responded by having the Parramatta impounded in port, with no persons or goods to be removed. But this only caused MacArthur to dig in further. He decided if Bly had taken control of his ship, then he would, quote, abandon her to the government and look to the underwriters, unquote. Of course, the ship was worth much more than the £800 bond he was required to pay, but this was clearly not about the money. It was about the power. Who would force the other to back down? Astounding how he felt himself above the law, isn't it? MacArthur then advised his ship's master and crew, who were also impounded aboard, that he no longer took responsibility for their provisioning and pay, and that they were to care for themselves, abandoning them too as collateral damage in his dispute. Advised by MacArthur they were on their own, the crew would have to come ashore and source their essential food and required goods, albeit illegally and so the master presented himself to the judge advocate to inform him of MacArthur's advice and to plead their case for disembarking, in breach of the port regulations. This meant MacArthur, as co-owner, could be charged with yet another regulatory breach, and so now the matter got really messy. MacArthur was to be advised about the crew potentially breaching regulations, and that in leaving them to their own devices and unprovisioned, he had some responsibility for their actions, and should make his case to the judge advocate before any further action might be considered. But Atkins seems to have worded this request for explanation poorly, or at least it was deemed offensive by MacArthur, ending with, quote, in consequence, I request your attendance at Sydney tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock to show cause for such your conduct, unquote. 
Now, that doesn't seem all that inflammatory to me, actually, but apparently show cause was a bit on the aggressive side, and MacArthur did not take kindly to being summoned. So what should have remained a calm procedural inquiry suddenly blew up into a mutually belligerent confrontation. MacArthur responded in writing, stating that the authorities had already been informed he was no longer taking any responsibility for the impounded ship or its crew, and he referred Atkins to the naval officer in charge for any further information required. Atkins became infuriated by MacArthur's defiance, and rather than send another letter of request, he issued a legal warrant for MacArthur to appear before the magistrate at 10am on Wednesday, December 16th. Having illegally stopped provisions for his crew, he had to answer for them violating the colonial regulations by coming ashore, and for previously refusing to come in and make his case when requested. So poor old Chief Constable Oakes, seemingly with very little desire to do so, was sent out to the MacArthur property in Parramatta to execute the warrant requiring MacArthur's attendance. An incensed MacArthur took the warrant from the apologetic constable, but told him that, had Atkins himself brought it, he would not have received him. Indeed, he added, if Atkins tried to enforce the warrant, he would be advised to come well armed, as MacArthur would, quote, never submit till blood was shed, unquote. Now them's fighting words. Now the language was becoming seditious. He told Oakes that they had robbed him of £10,000, referring to the ship he'd abandoned, I assume, so not quite robbed as much as discarded in a fit of pique, I'd say, and that, quote, they would soon make a rope to hang themselves, unquote. In fact, MacArthur gave Oakes a written response to take back to the authorities, stating, quote, Mr. Oakes, you will inform the persons who sent you here with the warrant you have now shown me and given me a copy of that I will never submit to the horrid tyranny that is attempted until I am forced, that I consider it with scorn and contempt as I do the persons who have directed it to be executed. J. MacArthur, December 15, 1807, unquote. Well, take that, Atkins and Bly. MacArthur needs to explain himself to no man. Next, he'll be quoting the Magna Carta in a bunning store, no doubt. OK, so around December 15th, I think we can see the ignition to rebellion lit. MacArthur must have been aware they were no longer feuding over his responsibilities relating to the Parramatta and its crew. Things had now taken a very serious and dangerous turn. He left his farm in Parramatta and headed to his Sydney residence, where he might have access to sympathetic supporters and men of influence there while he pondered his next step. The letter and MacArthur's explanations to Oakes were truly incendiary. Elizabeth MacArthur had heard the goings-on, and she was so concerned about the threats implied that she sent her son in the early morning to try and retrieve MacArthur's letter from Oakes before it could be shown to the judge advocate or the governor. But Oakes was already on his way to Sydney, and they had missed their opportunity to talk it back. In declaring his contempt for the requests of both the judge and the government, and in refusing to participate in any further official investigations related to the ship involved, MacArthur must have expected further action. It seemed then that the time for requesting explanations was over. Atkins ratcheted up the ante by actually charging MacArthur with 
illegally stopping the provisions of the master, mates and crew of the Parramatta, compelling them to violate the colonial regulation by coming unauthorised on shore. MacArthur suggested bloodshed would ensue should they try and make him submit, and his written and verbal responses given to Oakes could not be ignored. Indeed, could be seen as seditious. Armed men were to accompany two constables who would soon be sent out to arrest MacArthur. Now, there are differing moral and legal elements to this series of escalating actions. Legally, MacArthur was liable to forfeit the bond, his ship having carried, no matter how inadvertently, an escaped convict to Tahiti. It's a risk, and the cost of doing business in such a penal colony, and a strong incentive to ensure that none make it on board undiscovered. As owner, he was liable to supply his crew and keep them from coming ashore without the proper authorisation. Legally, the original letter issued by Atkins was only a request that MacArthur come in to explain the Parramatta-related actions. It was not a legal summons. So, while unwise, it was not illegal for MacArthur to ignore it, though it was obstructive and irresponsible. And the sources I used appear to suggest that issuing the legal warrant for MacArthur's arrest following should not have proceeded either, really. While the intemperate language of his threatening response was offensive, and was clear thumbing of his nose to Atkins and Bly, even verging on seditious, it should never have actually come to that. Wiser men could have de-escalated the confrontation, had there been any such men in charge in the colony. Atkins was not a legally trained lawyer, or indeed a real judge. In fact, as another toff who'd escaped his debts in England by scarpering to the far-flung outpost of New South Wales, He'd arrived in February of 1792 without the permissions he should have brought with him. And we spoke earlier about his moral failings, which continued to dog him in the new colony. So he's quite the dodgy character himself, but with fortunate and handy upper-class connections in England. Governor Philip had allowed him to stay, and surprisingly he was soon appointed as magistrate, probably only because of his connections, having been a close friend of Samuel Thornton, Judge Advocate of London. So desperate were the governors of New South Wales for non-convicts to fill the official roles that being a friend of a London judge was the best they could do in 1792. And this lack of legally trained and competent persons in the judiciary in the colony was a problem for decades. Like the governors before him, Bly had also requested a qualified replacement, describing Atkins as, quote, a disgrace to human jurisprudence, a drunkard and ignorant of the law, unquote. He realised that the community needed a judge in place that they could respect, but the English government once again failed to provide the support the colony needed, leaving Bly with quite the handicap in trying to run the colony fairly and efficiently. The relations between Atkins and MacArthur had been described as running hot and cold over the years. King described them as mortal enemies after numerous run-ins since the early days of the colony when MacArthur was still in the New South Wales Corps, but at the time of the Parramatta incident they were apparently on reasonable terms, and certainly Atkins had provided the favourable judgement in the case of the illegal stills, which allowed MacArthur to win that case against all the usual legal likelihood. Still, MacArthur had put him in his place over the ship's bond matter. They all appear such little men with fragile egos and a propensity for tantrums, don't they? Never was competence, independence and impartiality in the judicial system more necessary. Without it, 
we see the beginning of Bly's ruin becoming evident. When Oakes reported MacArthur's reactions to Atkins and Bly, they knew his brazen response could not be ignored. Atkins then convened a bench of magistrates, including the current commander of New South Wales Corps and friend of MacArthur and Major Johnson, along with Palmer and Campbell, to consider their next step. It's hard to say exactly what Johnson felt about the developing drama, but apparently he said nothing in defence of MacArthur at the time, and it was decided by all four that MacArthur needed to be taken under arrest and to have him, quote, safely lodged in His Majesty's jail, unquote. So a second warrant, now for MacArthur's arrest, was to be served at Elizabeth Farm by constables with armed attendants in light of MacArthur's threats of bloodshed. But MacArthur was no longer there. He was found the following day, December 16th, at a friend's home in Sydney, where he was taken at last into custody. Atkins advised him his arrest was for seditious and inflammatory statements he'd made, and asked him how he intended to plead. Of course, it was always going to be not guilty. No doubt he'd used his day in Sydney recruiting loyal friends and supporters for the next instalment of the conflict, and he was granted bail before being required to return to court the following day for the formal charges, giving him even more time to consult. He would have found a good number of people to call on, who also had a minor or more major beef with Bly, and who might harbour some antagonism towards him. If MacArthur could draw them together, the danger to Bly's leadership might suddenly become acute. Unfortunately for Bly, personal matters were distracting him, and he may not have been as focused on the developments as he should have been. Bly was dealing with the trauma of his son-in-law's approaching death on the home front. If you recall, Bly's daughter Mary and her husband, Lieutenant Putland, lived with him at Government House. As with his wife and children at home, Bly seems to have had a warm and loving relationship with his daughter Mary, and John too. Sadly, John Putland had arrived in the colony with tuberculosis, and despite their hope that the weather in the Antipodes might aid his recovery, instead his health gradually declined over the year. By the end of December he was approaching death, and the family was much distressed, just as the worst of the battles were taking place with MacArthur. Bly's personal sadness and concern about his daughter's grief would have been a major continuing distraction during the developing turmoil, and some things he may have monitored more closely at other times were left to the care of his rather incompetent judge advocate. Their unfortunate family circumstance may well have impacted on the eventual catastrophic outcome. Bly had also conveyed his concerns about the Corps and the potential for mutiny to Banks in October, so he knew there was dissent in the ranks. You'd have to imagine he might have been thinking more about the possible consequences and taken more care in supervising and clarifying matters instead of leaving it to Atkins, had he not been so distracted at home. On December 17th, MacArthur appeared before Atkins and four others, Johnston, Abbott, Campbell and Palmer. Johnston was supposed to have commented that, quote, MacArthur was a turbulent character and had caused trouble in the past when he was in the Corps and that it would be in his interest to be more moderate, unquote. But who knows what his true feelings were and whether he already had a mind to work with MacArthur to overthrow the government at this point. They were hoping to charge MacArthur with sedition, but it wasn't entirely clear at that hearing exactly what charges he would need to answer so he would need to await the formal indictment papers, but he took the opportunity then to object to Campbell being on the bench 
Given their history, in the Stills case, Campbell withdrew, but the other four did commit him to stand trial at the next criminal court, due on January 25th. Having no one in the colony legally trained, particularly in matters of sedition, the formulation of the charges would be a challenge, and the ex-convict Crosley was once again put to task researching the possibilities. But they would find that sedition is a very problematic notion, and there was no straightforward crime of sedition that they could call on. According to Evett and Davis, there were common law misdemeanours of seditious words, of seditious libel, and of seditious conspiracy. So they were forced to formulate the desired charges. The resulting indictment was complicated, and he was to answer a number of charges, which Davis summarises thus. 1. That he unlawfully imported two stills, unlawfully removed the copper boilers from the government store, and laid a vexatious complaint against Campbell Jr. for the purpose of creating a forum for seditiously libelling the governor. 2 that he carried out a seditious purpose by writing to the master and crew of the Parramatta, thereby causing them to break the law and coming ashore illegally, and that he wrote a defamatory letter to Atkins via Oaks containing seditious libel of the judge and the governor, the documents intending to provoke others to oppose the governor and government officers of the colony. And three, that he further uttered and wrote seditious libel and seditious words on December 16th. When MacArthur did manage to get hold of a draft copy of the likely charges, a copy having, you know, fallen off the proverbial back of a truck and been slipped to him by a friend, Davis suggests that he would have realised he was unlikely to make any viable defence against such charges. He would need to ensure he had reliable friends on the bench. MacArthur was granted bail between his arrest and the criminal case in January 25th, and maybe this was not the wisest move, leaving him to tout his dissatisfaction all over town and recruit supporters to his cause. When the time came, his day in court was not going to unfold as Atkins might have envisaged. Nor was he at all intimidated by the impending court appearance, taking the opportunity while on bail of approaching Atkins and calling in a 16-year-old outstanding debt he believed he was owed. And their negotiations on resolving that proceeded exactly as we might imagine, with claim, counterclaim, appeals, threats, etc., etc., continuing on into January 2. This was an excellent arrangement for MacArthur, in attempting to ensure potentially hostile judge may, under such circumstances, be disqualified from hearing his case, perhaps. It'd certainly be worth a try. Now, one further point of agitation added fuel to the rising fire, the Surveyor-General had been continuing the work decreed by Bly earlier in the year in recalling those illegal land leases to open up and free the domain area in the city centre. These reclamations had been traumatic and aggravating to the leaseholders, many of whom were core men or ex-core men, some of whom had already constructed buildings on their site, giving them an even stronger feeling of unfair material loss when the time came to give them up. And of course, MacArthur had one of these leases in question. And predictably, he refused other offers of alternate leases around Sydney, claiming none matched his current site. No doubt, an exhausted Bly continued to insist all leases must be reclaimed. And MacArthur, of course, failing to recognise once again Bly's authority to act, insisted his claim and argument be sent to London for fair adjudication. 
Bly reluctantly allowed this appeal, but told him not to build any structure on the land while awaiting the outcome. Probably a reasonable compromise. I'm sure you can guess how that all went, though. Yep. Why just wait patiently for your potentially favourable response from England when you can take action and provoke the hated Bly in the meantime? During all this tension and tumult, poor John Putland had died on January 4th. In mid-January, in yet another audacious act, MacArthur employed a couple of the core soldiers to erect a fence around his lease. It was not bad enough that he defied the governor, but he'd roped in two men who were sworn to act on behalf of and defend the colonial government into actually undertaking activities the governor had expressly forbidden. I'm uncertain if the two soldiers knew just what was going on, but it's clear just how much support and influence MacArthur maintained within the Corps. Now, it does seem like there was an awful lot of focus on disagreements with MacArthur, but of course, these are the ones we recall now, because we know the outcome. There was much else going on, and many other people involved. Evert, admittedly rather pro-Bly and anti-MacArthur in his writings, describes Bly's sympathy as being with the settlers and the poorer classes. In fact, this is where his orders from England requested he focus. Meanwhile, Evert describes the New South Wales Corps and their ilk as the trading and capitalist group, open to any corruption and unfairness in governance if it was of benefit to themselves. Other Corps officers and sympathisers took opportunities to raise objections and invite litigation so that they had the opportunity to publicly air their discontent with Bly's new edicts and regulations too, such as Wentworth in the dispute about his devious use of convict labour, and many took the opportunity to write exaggerated, inflammatory and accusatory letters to the authorities in England alleging Bly's incompetence and corruption after each unpleasant change in their circumstance. But MacArthur does seem inordinately vexatious and instrumental in encouraging others to the tactic. For all the talk of Bly's explosive temper, MacArthur also seems to display incredible volatility and little common sense or discretion when it comes to negotiation. No matter the rights and wrongs of any matter, he felt the need to stand his ground, to return fire verbally and legally, and he could be quite threatening physically as Campbell had discovered the night he tried to retrieve the illegal stills. MacArthur was creating every opportunity to infuriate Bly, but it seems it was still not evident to Bly that MacArthur was marshalling a lot of personal support around him and that the danger to his authority was intensifying. As MacArthur's day in the criminal court approached, his power play would soon come to a head, and so the tense standoff continued. And the tension and rumours must have been all the talk of the colony too. Indeed, the threat to Bly's governorship must have been a point of discussion, as it was around the time that an address of support, signed by 833 settlers, came to Bly, stating their thanks to Bly for undertaking his work and so greatly improving their lot, and further assuring him of their support and regard, even at the risk of their lives and properties and they actually publicly published a copy of that address, so the trading faction would have been aware of their sentiments too. It was clear there were many who were happy with Bly's reforms, and were prepared to stand behind him should their support be required. That's certainly a strong vote of confidence, but in the end they would not be able to stop the New South Wales Corps taking control. 
MacArthur spent much of his time in a metaphorical huddle with Johnston and others of influence amongst the anti-Bly faction. It seems likely, to me at least, that this was the actual coup planning beginning. On January 22nd, Johnson requested the Corps hold a mess dinner on the 24th, and Bly unwisely gave his blessing. Oh man, could you not see the look of Fletcher Christian in Johnson's eyes? And so, on the evening before long-time New South Wales Corps past officer and now good friend MacArthur was to stand trial on serious charges of sedition, the officers, soldiers and influential Sydney civilians gathered at the mess dinner, and a good time was had by all, as they say. Now, it's unclear if the future plans of the Corps were already in the making, or if the drink and talk during the night emboldened them, but it's possible there were some very serious issues discussed that night, and a shocking plan of action was set in motion. MacArthur made sure he was conspicuously seen strolling elsewhere about town. He was no way, definitely not, I can't believe you would think it, with them in the mess, plotting rebellion. I mean, he had a big day in court tomorrow. But he kindly provided them with a good quantity of liquor at knockdown pricing to help their enjoyment, no doubt. And his sons, Edward and Hannibal, were in attendance, along with many of his firm friends. And so, as the sun rose on January the 25th, probably a few of Sydney's militia and citizenry still recovering from the revelries of the night before, those who counted made their way to the courthouse to hear MacArthur's latest and most serious criminal trial. And there it became clear the judiciary and then the government was about to come off the rails. As Davis wrote, quote, A sizable crowd would have gathered, waiting for admission. Any court case in which John MacArthur featured was worth watching, and this one promised to be a memorable performance. Either he would triumph over the judge advocate and governor, or he would become a convict. Whatever the result, at least some in the colony would be delighted. <laughs> Brunton summarised the unfolding drama that day, blow by blow, like this. Atkins swore in six military officers to hear the case, and to MacArthur's delight, no doubt, no naval officers. All were friends from the New South Wales Corps. Captain Kemp, Lieutenants Brabin, Moore, Lycock, Lawson and Minchin. MacArthur then objected to Atkins presiding, given Atkins still owed him money, amongst many other objections. Now, actually, this may have been a pretty reasonable objection, though in a small colony, was there anyone who didn't owe MacArthur money? <laughs> anyway, the newly sworn officers agreed, and they then refused to sit with him as judge. Atkins immediately sent a note to Bly to intervene, as did the officers, requesting Atkins' removal. Bly responded in writing that he had no authority to remove the judge advocate, and one assumes he, had he ever, he would have removed Atkins long ago, and he advised them they must proceed. The officers reiterated they would not try MacArthur with Atkins in charge. Atkins stormed out of the court in outrage, inadvertently leaving his legal papers behind, and the military officers seized them, refusing to hand them back when Atkins realised what he'd done and tried to retrieve them. On being informed, Bly then demanded the return of the relevant court papers, those outlining the charges against MacArthur and the document MacArthur had read out in court. The officers refused to comply, 
MacArthur then demanded the military protection of the Corps, complaining he felt threatened by the, quote, armed ruffians, the police, unquote, and other men against him. Shockingly, MacArthur was setting the military against the civilian officers. But this would be nothing to what was about to come. Again, Bly wrote demanding the requested papers, and the officers finally made copies for him, but they retained the originals. And then, before adjourning the court themselves, they quickly went through the motions of granting MacArthur bail, having already allowed him to leave with his requested military escort. By 5.30pm, things were clearly spiralling out of control. Bly sent for the Corps commander, George Johnson, to come to Government House immediately to bring his men to heel. No doubt Bly was beginning to feel the ranks were revolting. (laughs) But Johnson sent word that he had been injured in a fall on the night of the Corps mess dinner the night before, and that he was unable to respond in person or in writing. (gasps) The commandant of the Rum Corps declined to respond to a call by his commanding officer, the governor. Don't loyal officers crawl over burning coals to meet the orders of their superiors? Bly must now have been feeling seriously compromised. Though apparently not cowed, he was left to ponder his next move without the support of his militia, and it must have been a very unsettling night at Government House. Although he did go ahead with the dinner (laughs) he had planned. MacArthur, on the other hand, would have been well pleased with the chaos. As Davis notes, His supporters in the court had given him a standing ovation for his speech, objecting to Atkins. Atkins, soon after being ruffled and was in the process of being bundled out of his role, and the six corps men left were already openly defying the governor. But a Navy man from the age of seven, Bly believed in the rule of law and the chain of command. While poor quality, the men of the corps were gentlemen who had sworn allegiance to the king, and that meant being obedient to the king's man, surely. Besides, what else was there to do? At 9am the following day, January 26th, exactly 20 years since Philip had come ashore and declared the colony established, Bly was to begin his last day in control of the colony. He issued a warrant for MacArthur's arrest, and he was taken back into custody by Provost Marshal Gore. At 10am, the military officers again insisted that Atkins be replaced, and further, they asked for MacArthur to be released on bail. Bly did not respond to that request, and at 3pm they again adjourned. Meanwhile, Atkins, with the help of Crossley, defined the officers' actions as treasonous, and Bly sent each of them a summons, requesting they appear before him the following day. He then let Johnston know about the development. It seems like an extreme action, but I'm not sure what options Bly had, given Johnson had earlier refused to call his men into line, or even discuss the matter face-to-face with Bly. Bly may have, perhaps, backed down and adjourned the whole matter for a couple of weeks' consideration, but certainly that measured response doesn't seem in character, and anyway, that may have simply left him weakened and open to more rebelliousness. Perhaps the quick action was all that was left to him. I'm sure he knew the militia could be trouble, judging by his earlier letter to Banks, but would he have really anticipated what was about to happen? At 5pm, the previously ill Johnson suddenly returned to the Corps barracks. He ordered the release of MacArthur, and he met with him for some discussion. Johnson then composed a document which declared himself to be the acting Lieutenant Governor of New South Wales, 
and MacArthur drafted a petition addressed to the military, as a representative of the civilian colonists, I suppose, requesting that they arrest Bly as a tyrant. Good Lord, it's the mutiny all over again. At 8.30pm on January 26th, a bloodless coup had taken place in Sydney, and martial law was declared by Johnson. Governor Bly was deposed, and Johnston and his supporters began establishing their case, which they knew would need to be presented to the authorities in England to justify their extreme actions. So now, in the next episode, we'll finish this series on Bly by looking at what happened at Government House that afternoon, and the outcome of the so-called Rum Rebellion. It's been a pretty long episode, so I've got no podcast recommendation for you today. But please listen out for the final episode as we describe how Bly, and indeed his daughter Mary, faced this new mutiny. And how Johnston, MacArthur, and the other corps officers and anti-Bly citizens proceeded to claim the high moral ground for their actions. So talk to you soon. Meanwhile, have a safe and happy few weeks. Cheers. Cheers.